All right, let's go Revelation chapter 3 for the last time for a while. Revelation chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, you'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. If you don't have a Bible of your very own, one that you can call yours, uh, we would invite you to take that physical Bible home that we have under the racks and under the seats. Uh, we believe that God uses his word for a number of important things, but the, the biggest of all the good reasons that God uses his word uh, is to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by knowing him, filtered filter through the lens of knowing him. And if the scriptures are what he uses to do that in you, then it's really just a, a math problem. Put more scriptures in your life and you will see more of God. Um, so we, we made it now to the last week of uh, an effort to walk through what's commonly been called the letters to the seven churches. Uh, and if you're new here or maybe new to the Bible, uh, there, are sev- there are seven kind of mini letters at the beginning of the larger letter of Revelation, right? Uh, and Jesus gives the Apostle John a, a kind of a vision uh, a, a, and to, to, to give a letter to these churches, he gives them a vision, tells them to write everything down, uh, everything that's happening, everything that's a, about to happen. Uh, and, it, and it's meant to be an encouragement uh, to them about the things that are going on around them and the things that are about, you know, coming down the pipe. Uh, and as you know, uh, the letter of Revelation is full of a lot of you know, we, weird stuff, we could call it, right? Apocalyptic imagery. Uh, and there's lots of opinions and debates about what all the different things mean and uh, the timeline of all the, the different things. And, and well, a lot of folks have a theory, and some of those folks have charts. Uh, and but, like, ignoring all the theories for a second, the purpose of the letter of Revelation is encouragement. It's encouragement. And so any interpretive effort that leads people to alarmism or even towards some type of fear-mongering, well, that would be outside of the reason God gave them the letter in the first place. It's outside, it's using the book of Revelation for something other than what God gave it to them for. And so these seven letters at the beginning of Revelation serve as the interpretive lens for everything coming after it. We understand chapters 4 through 22 because of what Jesus says in 1 through 3. Jesus, as Lord and Master of these churches, gives each of them a brief kind of introductory letter uh, to celebrate what he sees as worthy of celebration, but also to correct what he sees as insufficient. And the threat, when held in tandem with the promise that those who endure will be secure, the threat is that those churches who fail to repent or maybe even don't care about repenting, they will have their lampstands removed. And again, that's a, it's a weird picture, but it's a symbolic picture for saying that they will cease to be a church according to the way Jesus defines a church. So we've looked at six of these seven letters so far. We've got our last one this morning. Who is it? Laodicea. Each of these churches has a different personality. They've Different strengths and weaknesses. They've got different tendencies. They've got different leaders. They've got different contexts that they're trying to preach the gospel into. Last week, Les got to preach the easy one. All right, he got to preach Philadelphia. Jesus doesn't have anything negative to say about Philadelphia. They're doing mostly okay, but that's not the case before us this morning. Um, Laodicea is one of two churches in these seven letters that Jesus doesn't have anything positive to say. In fact, it's pretty clear to me that Laodicea is the biggest dumpster fire of the bunch. So who's ready to look at a dumpster fire this morning? No? No? I'm interested. All right, here we go. Verse 14. Let's get this this ball rolling. Verse 14 of chapter 3. It says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, 
the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. All right, so what do we know about the town of Laodicea? All right, well, we, got, we get to know a good little bit. Mr. Brent, do you have some pictures for me? Maybe. I, how about I keep talking while you work on pictures? All right, so the biggest descriptive thing that we need to look, kind of lock in on uh, this morning is that Laodicea was a boom town, all right, in every sense of the word. It was the place where you would go and make your fortune or go and lose your fortune depending upon how good of an entrepreneur you were. And Laodicea, man, it had more than its fair share of entrepreneur types. It was doing well. So all series long, uh, we've been kind of showing pictures from one of those touristy biblical site trips that I got the privilege of going on. Y'all sent me on one of those trips back last November. It's been almost a year now. Um, And I got to visit Laodicea. And so, do we have some pictures? I probably should have like, given him a heads up. This was, he was working on a lot of stuff, and we didn't talk about this, so it's on me. So no one, no one is allowed to look back at Brent with, like, with like awkward. Like you can't be like, what are you doing, Brent? This is, this is Stephen's fault. Hey, we got pictures. All right, so this is a map of Turkey. I don't know if you knew that. All right, the red dot is where Laodicea would have been. If you're looking at your own map app, if you want to like pull out your phone, you can do that this one time here. All right, uh, you, you type in Denizli, Turkey, D-E-N-I-Z-L-I. I'm pretty sure that's how it's pronounced, Denizli, all right? But Denizli, Turkey, all right? You can see that big green section there around the dot, just kind of north of the dot. That's a giant valley, all right? Really, really lush like farm area, they, they got all kinds of crops there. Um, but let, let's see the next slide. So you got these three places right here. Laodicea would have been the left bottom, or bottom left, I guess, point on that triangle. All right, Overlooking the valley to its east, northeast, and southeast, all that kind of stuff. All right? But those two other dots are two other incredibly important cities in the New Testament that you've probably heard of before. The top of the triangle is Heropolis, and the bottom of the triangle is Colossae. These are all really, really close to each other, only a few miles away from each other. Right? In the book of Colossians, you may already remember this because you read Colossians a lot, I'm sure. Paul tells the Colossian church to greet the other two cities at the end of the letter, and then to go up to Laodicea and grab the letter that he sent to them and read it themselves. And then also, uh, like, send their letter on to Laodicea. Now, we don't have a copy of whatever letter Paul's talking about that he wrote to the Laodiceans, but I think we can all assume that Paul probably had some spicy things to say to them. All right? But you can see these other two cities from each other. Like, they're really, really close. They've got a relationship with each other. Let's see the next slide. So this is the hill called Laodicea, or at least what's been excavated of it so far, right? Um, There's a ton of volcanic and geologic activity in the area, lots of earthquakes, uh, countless hot springs everywhere you look. Uh, The river that runs through that valley is the Lycus River. And the Lycus River, you can't drink it because it's full of heavy metals from all the volcanic activity going on. Completely undrinkable. Let me see the next slide. This is an aerial shot. You can see the kind of main thoroughfare running through town, that one big main, uh, main street road. Uh, but then at the top of the picture, you've got a theater. And then on the, left, the right side of the picture, you've got an even bigger theater. So they've got two theaters in town. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the one at the top held about 15,000 people, they estimate. The, the 
bigger one to the right. They haven't excavated yet, but they, they're pretty sure that at least 20,000 can fit in there. So it's a big deal kind of place. Now let's see the next slide. This is the smaller <laughs> of the two theaters. It's not exactly tiny. Um, they've actually repaired this one enough that they've started hosting shows at it. Like, they'll, they'll put a play on there or some kind of concert, and you can buy tickets and sit on really bad concrete. <laughs> it's great. Um, let's see the next slide. That's a view overlooking the valley. You know, they always built their theaters into the side of the hill to take advantage of the amphitheater kind of vibe. Uh, and so you may, at the very top of the top right corner of the theater, you can see some white cliffs in the background. Keep going on to the next slide. Uh, these are some temples that they've repaired. The next slide, more temples that they repaired. Uh, these are reconstructions of some temples. And uh, I, I think the jury is still out on who they actually belong to because they can't find the inscriptions of who they would be belong to. Uh, but to be honest though, uh, I wasn't paying very careful attention to the tour guide and the little earpiece at that moment because I was on a FaceTime call with Katie and the kids like showing them around. All right. I wasn't a good student in Laodicea. All right. Uh, let me see, uh, let's see the next slide. Okay, yeah, that one. All right, so those are the white cliffs that's off the right corner of the theater. So the theater's kind of looking north and off to the east across that valley. On top of those white cliffs is the city of Heropolis. So when I say that they, had a, they were pretty close, they're pretty close. Um, the, the, the hot springs in Heropolis had a lot of calcium in it. And so as it flows over the cliff... It deposits the, the calcium and it leaves the cliffs white and all those things. And there are dozens of pools there that they've carved out. And you can go splash around in the pools. And they're supposed to have a healing effect, you know, kind of like a spa. And I totally fell in the water there, fully clothed. Um, whatever, whatever. It was a good trip, all right? Just made for an awkward bus ride afterwards. All right. Next slide. This right here is believed to be the doorway of a home, first or second century home, that we're pretty confident hosted a church. Now, there's some debate over exactly when that church would have been there. The home is definitely, you know, first, late first, early second century. We're not exactly sure when the church would have been inside those walls. Uh, it doesn't, certainly doesn't mean that the Christians receiving this letter would have been there, but it, maybe, I don't know. Maybe. So we've been intentional in each of these letters to pay careful attention to how Jesus introduces himself, right? And the intro is usually an indicator as to what the problem is and how Jesus stands in judgment over that problem. And he says a couple of things in, in verse 14 that are supposed to grab the attention of his Laodicean readers. He calls himself the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So, so what does that mean? Well, it means that whatever the Laodiceans believed about themselves or even wanted to present about themselves, Jesus stands as the actual judge who sees the end from the beginning. Jesus was standing there as, the, as author and originator of all creation. He's, he has perfect authorial understanding of every single thing, including everything that's going on in Laodicea and the church there. 
But it's not merely past truth that he has authorial knowledge of. Jesus also calls himself the amen, meaning that Jesus will be standing there when all of creation finally meets its perfect judgment and end, including Laodicea and the church there. Colossians 1.16, maybe you know it. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. And listen, there's the key part, for him. For him. Despite whatever opinion the Laodicean church happens to hold of themselves, and I'm sure they had a pretty lofty opinion of themselves, despite whatever actions they might have taken to, to, to build a public perception for everyone else, Jesus has been on the scene the entire time. He's growing closer and closer to giving his final verdict. And so even before we get out of the first verse, we've, we've already got some tension in this letter, right? Jesus is turning up the volume here. And we can tell that there's a tone in Jesus' voice that's a little sharper than the previous six letters, even the, even the not-so-healthy ones. And then verse 15 happens. Look at verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Let's call time out there. All right, so Jesus just turned the dial up here. I don't know if you caught it. All right? it it's a line that if you have any church background at all, you're probably pretty familiar with. Uh, and I'm sure you've heard it before. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. So what in the world does that mean? Well, apparently, cold things are judged as good by Jesus and hot things are judged as good by Jesus. But apparently, it's a problem to be somewhere in the middle of those two points. Right? Good to know. So Jesus normally opens these letters with some kind of commendation, right? A celebration of the good things that Jesus sees because there needs to be a celebration of the good things that Jesus sees. But we don't have that here. Jesus just skips the good stuff, right? He doesn't have anything that's nice to say. He just goes straight for the negative. Now that doesn't mean, at least I don't think it means, that there's literally nothing positive going on in Laodicea. We're going to learn just a little bit that there's actually several things that they could point to and, and, and try to celebrate. But Jesus breaks with his typical pattern in these letters and ignores anything that could be considered positive in this moment. And I think he does that for a reason. I think it's because there is a core level problem that corrupts all of the potentially good things and turns them into incredibly negative things. In other words, Leota's strengths are turned into weaknesses by a cancerous corruption that's going to make a mess of everything. But we'll, we'll get to that totally not ominous thing later. Let's move on. All right, verse 16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Well, that's a friendly little picture. Sweet little, never challenged anybody Jesus, Right? Isn't that your picture of him? Jesus calls this church lukewarm. So, so what in the world is that supposed to mean? Well, in this case, it's a word picture that the Laodicean readers would have absolutely immediately filled with meaning and understood. I mentioned earlier that the city sat along the Lycus River, up on the hill from the Lycus River, and, it, and the Lycus was undrinkable because of all the heavy metals in it. So archaeologists tell us that Laodicea, and during the first century, got their potable water through an aqueduct that flowed from a different hot springs about five miles away. Okay? Cool. That's how they got their water. Um, but when you send hot water down a channel for five miles, 
It ain't hot when it gets to you. But it's not cool and refreshing either. It's just kind of slightly warm. If you were creative and had a better vocabulary, you might even choose to use the word lukewarm, right? Cold water's great. Hot water has its place, but slightly warm water's pretty disgusting, actually. But it was the best option that they had, and so that's what they were stuck with. Nobody, nobody liked it, though. Nobody was congratulating Laodicea on their drinking water, winning awards for best drinking water in the valley. That's not Laodicea's game. So Jesus here, he seems to use this reality to illustrate something else that's important. He says, hey, I know your works. I know who you are and what you're about. I know what you spend your time on and your attention chasing after. And I even know what you want others to think about you. You're neither cold nor hot, though. In other words, you're building an impressive name for yourself, but you lack zeal over what actually matters to me. I can use hot water. I can definitely use cold water. I have no purpose for lukewarm water. And because of their lukewarmness, Jesus says something that's often really hard for us to hear, right? He says, I'm just going to go ahead and spit you out of my mouth. Now, I'm typically a fan of the English Standard Version and how it translates things. There's a very real reason why we choose as a church to use that uh, for our, all of our public teaching. I, I tend to like the way that the ESV translates things, uh, but I, I don't like it here. I don't like it that it chose the word spit because, well, it's far too polite a picture. Jesus ain't talking about spit. Um, spitting is all about a bad taste in your mouth and getting it out. It's a, it's a mouth-specific action. But the Greek word that Jesus uses here starts in the gut. You got something disagreeable in your stomach. And the stomach responds to that disagreeableness. And it must be forcefully expelled in order to fix the problem. And that's why many other faithful English translations render verse 16 as Jesus vomiting them out or promising to vomit them out. And I get it. That's, that's a word picture that most people don't really like to think about. It pricks a lot of people's sensibilities. I'm fully aware of that. I, you're not supposed to talk about vomit in polite society. I think we all agree. But apparently Jesus thinks it's the exact right word to use in this moment. If not, he would have picked a different word. And so the question becomes, what exactly is going on in Laodicea that merits such a vivid picture? That's not even the biggest question to answer, because there's actually a far bigger one. What does it mean for Jesus to threaten such an action to people who claim to belong to him? Jesus seems to have a visceral reaction to their lukewarm posture. It makes him sick to his stomach, and he must do something about it. And now he's promising to act upon it. We've already seen throughout this series that Jesus has incredibly strong words for, uh, and warnings for, for churches that are lifeless, incredibly strong warnings for churches that are walking in incorrect doctrine or dabbling in uh, the pagan rituals around them. Yes and amen. Jesus has some very strong warning for them. But throughout these seven letters, Jesus appears to have reserved his most severe criticism for the church that, thinks, that kind of thinks that they've got everything figured out. And therefore they have lost their zeal for what Jesus has actually called them to be and to do. So why is that significant for us this morning? Well, it's actually because the next part of this letter goes the exact opposite direction of where we think the letter is going to go. All right? 
See, there are a lot of things around here in our church um, that could be rightly pointed at and celebrated, I think, good things like, whoa, look at what that church is doing kind of things, even things that other churches probably wish that they could do, right? Um, uh, our announcements are full of, of opportunities to give and to go and to serve. We have every intent of multiplying all those opportunities down the road. Uh, we've got a pretty long list of things around here that other churches, uh, I think, wish uh, that we could wish that they could do incredibly well and think that we do incredibly well. And in most cases, I think they're right. By God's grace, we've got a lot of wins in the wind column, I think. But we're going to learn in a second that the potential exists for really good things to be corrupted and turned into indictments against the church rather than things that are worthy of being celebrated. Or let me say that a different way. I think there's a subtle shift that can occur within the corporate identity of a body of believers that has the ability to undermine and even completely ruin all of the good things that a church is doing. And we know that's what Jesus is going after because of what he attacks next. Look at verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, Poor, blind, and naked. All right, so those words obviously could stand all on their own and you know, without any further explanation. But again, this is another one of those moments where uh, there's a massive cultural piece that weighs in on uh, the, the understanding of the people, the first audience receiving this letter. And so what, what is that cultural piece? Well, even though they had terrible water, Laodicea was still every bit the boomtown. Um, it was the center of commerce. It was the center of banking. There was an incredibly famous gold trade in Laodicea. Many people saw Laodicea as the commercial hub of southern Asia, or, and so that part of Turkey during the first century. We also know that there was a very, very, very prosperous textile industry there. Apparently, Laodicea was famous for having a, 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 glass, a kind of a glossy black wool linen that they, that they made toward the end of the first century. And, and if fashion was on your radar in that part of the world during that part of history, Laodicea and wool was a non-negotiable for you. You had to look good. If you wanted to look good, you had Laodicea and wool on. What does that mean for us? Well, it means that there was a lot of cash flowing through the city. There's a lot of cash. And even though the water stunk, there were still a bunch of reasons to want to be Laodicean. On top of that, we know that a, a major earthquake struck the city in 60 AD, completely tore up the place, and just knocked everything down. And you think that that would be a problem, except Laodicea had a lot of cash. So they were the king of the comeback town. History tells us that Rome offered to help them rebuild after the, the 60 AD earthquake. But the Laodiceans got all prideful about it and told them, no thanks. We'll do it ourselves. We got it. The, the Roman historian Tacitus uh, wrote in his annals that, quote, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources with no help from us. They were going to rebuild the place themselves. They, they didn't need Rome's help. They didn't want Rome's help. They'd be just fine. They had the means. They had the know-how. They had the resolve. They didn't want mighty Rome coming in and acting like they fixed the problem. No, we don't want your help. We'll do it ourselves. We got it. Stay back. And stand on their own two feet. Thank you very much. And Jesus here, speaking to the Laodicean church, goes, you really think you've got everything handled? You really think that you can fix all of your problems all by yourself? 
You say I'm rich. You say I have prospered. You say I need nothing. But from my vantage point, you don't look so good right now. Spiritually speaking, you're wretched. You're pitiable. You can puff up your chest all you want. You can act like you've got it all figured out. But I see right through you, Laodicea. Because of your lukewarm complacency, because of your lack of zeal for me and my calling, I don't congratulate you at all. I pity you. The Laodiceans had resources. In fact, they they pretty much had all they could ever want. It was all at their fingertips. They looked around and everything they saw had something that they had won for themselves. They had built for themselves. They had had secured for themselves. And and, and so (laughs) they, they didn't hurt for anything. While our church, man, our church has never been responsible for rebuilding ourselves after some kind of natural disaster. While we're certainly not rolling with all the cash we could ever want, in fact, far from it, uh, we do have some things that might compare. Uh, we're, we're not as far removed from Laodicea as we hope sometimes. We've got a nice big building, we've got seemingly growing congregation, the, the bills are paid, we're incredibly generous outside of ourselves, there's... That's something a lot, of, a lot of churches in New Hampshire can't say. There's a lot of churches in New Hampshire that come in, can't come anywhere close to saying that. We, we got programs and ministries, budget items, uh, line items that other churches wish they had. And I think if we're not careful, oh church, I think if we're not careful, it is entirely possible to find ourselves in a place where those good things become markers of our success rather than mere tools that we use to, uh, to, for the one thing that Jesus has actually called us to be about. We can look around at periphery things, yes, even good kingdom-building periphery things, and forget that they're only periphery. We can look at all the window dressing and get the false impression that we've somehow arrived. We don't need help. We've got the means. We've got the resolve. We've got the know-how. Just stay back there. We got it. Don't bother coming in. We'll handle it. And Jesus here, speaking to a church with their own long list of really good things going on, he goes, from my vantage point, you're poor and you're blind. You're naked and you don't even realize it. But what makes Jesus so wonderfully unique? Oh, I love him for this. Is that he's the kind of king that not only speaks truth to the naked, but he offers them clothing as well. Look at what he says next in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Verse 19, those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Jesus says to this church, if you, if you would stop trusting in yourself and what you can accomplish and instead trust in me and my provision for you, you'd actually be what you think you are. Congratulations, you're sitting in a comfortable place right now. Everything's pretty. You got cash in your pocket. And everybody's impressed with what you've been able to build all by yourself. Everybody wants Laodicea and gold. It's the finest in the land. But the treasure I offer is refined by fire and is of infinite value. Good for you. I see you got your, your pretty black linen garment on this morning. You're looking all dapper. But the clothing I provide is pure white. It actually covers your shame. 
In a town that has a lot of purchasing power and all the pride and vanity that usually comes with a lot of purchasing power, Jesus tells this church that what they really need is to find their treasure and to find their provision and to find their identity in him alone. And that until they do so, nothing they build for themselves will ever satisfy. It will always have a cancerous and corrosive core that robs them of what they actually need. But here's the problem. You might have caught it. Um, These things can't exactly be purchased with money. At least not from Jesus. It doesn't matter what number that the Laodiceans have in their bank account. They don't have the capital to buy what they need from Jesus. But the good news is that the good king operates by a totally different economy. And there's another layer, cultural layer that, to this that comes into play here. Jesus tells them to purchase ointment for their eyes, uh, ointment or salve for their eyes. So not, not only was Laodicea cashing in on the textiles and the banking, but we also know that they had a booming medical industry. Apparently, uh, they were quite famous for making uh, an eye ointment that got exported throughout the, the known world. And so, hey, you remember that muddy, metal-rich water down by the river? Apparently, it was still good for something. And so never discount the Laodicean entrepreneurial spirit. They couldn't drink the stuff, but they figured out how to sell it. So everybody in the ancient Near Eastern world looked to Laodicea to help them see better. But Jesus has a different opinion on the matter. He says, you want to truly see? You want spiritual sight? You'll buy your salve from me. I love you and I want good for you. Repent and turn away from your self-provision. Turn away from your self-satisfaction. Instead, be zealous for me. Hear my correction. Hear my rebuke while there is still time. Repent, he says. And it's with this context that the most quotable verse in all of these seven letters to the churches comes into play. Look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. All right, so I happen to think, it's just my opinion, but I happen to think that this is one of the most misread and misapplied verses in the entire Bible. All right, uh, in fact, a few years ago, we did a series over a summer called I Don't Think That Means What You Think That Means. All right, and we, we looked at proof-texted verses in the Bible that people tend to get completely wrong about what they're actually saying, and this made the cut. In fact, it was the first one on the list, all right? Normally, normally this verse used, it gets used in connection with evangelism, and, and in, in a sense, for good reason, right? It calls for a response. And every good evangelism moment calls for a, a response. You've got to draw that net, right? That's, if you don't draw the net, you're not doing evangelism, right? But there are two really significant problems with trying to use this verse, Revelation 3.20, for evangelism, all right? One... I think it misrepresents Jesus. That sounds like a problem, right? Um, we're going to act like it's a problem. Hey, Mr. Brent, can I see that last picture in the, the stuff? One more. That's it. I know I put it in there. All right. Anyways, all right, so here's the deal. So if you were right now to Google this verse and then the word illustrated, and you went to the images tab. Oh, there it is. I, I told you. All right, so <laughs> this is a painting called The Light of the World. 
it's, it's currently hanging in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. So we're talking about highbrow art here. All right? uh, it was painted in the, the kind of the 1850s by a guy named William Holman Hunt. Um, and Hunt was a part of a painting movement called the Pre-Raphaelites. Um, they were realists in their style, but you can see that they used really dark tones uh, in their paintings, uh, really saturated colors. And, uh, but more than anything else, the Pre-Raphaelites were known and delighted in hiding political and theological messages in their paintings. And there's a message hidden in this painting that Hunt himself said was there. You know what the message is? There's no, there's no door handle on the door. The message that Hunt intentionally folded into this painting is that Jesus is outside knocking, but that he's incapable of actually opening the door himself. He needs you to open it for him. And this metaphor has been picked up and repeated over and over again in a lot of modern attempts to illustrate this verse. And there's a lot of people who grab a hold of that, uh, that theme and, and love that theme and, and think that's good theology. And, and the reason is because it teaches a particular theological bent that they embrace, right? Jesus is hanging around by the door waiting for you, the master of the house, to let him in. Let him into your heart. The problem with that, though, there's a lot of problems, but probably the biggest problem is that I just don't get the impression from the rest of the Bible that Jesus has ever needed to beg anybody for anything. Right? Now, he certainly calls. That's, that's obvious. That's clear. It's also clear that he expects you to respond to his call. But Jesus has never, nor will he ever, need you to do him a solid and let him into play. Which leads to the second problem with using verse 20 for evangelism. Not only does it misrepresent Jesus, but also I think it grossly ignores who Jesus is actually writing this letter to. A church. Not individuals. He's writing it to a church. A church who looks at their own man-made effort and who looks at all the things that they've built for themselves and all the fame that they've gathered for themselves and, and they, they, they pridefully believe that they are the ones responsible for that success. Yes, there's a long list of good things going on, but they've allowed the belief to slowly creep in that they are the ones who deserve the credit for all of it. They've begun to believe that they've got their house in order, but at the end of the day, it ain't their house. It's not their house, it's Jesus' house. Whether everybody around them is impressed with them or not doesn't matter in the slightest. They are servants and caretakers of someone else's property. They carry the title of a church for no other reason but because the master of the house allows them to carry the title of a church. And so Jesus knocks on the door, not as some beggar hoping that someone will be kind to him and let him in, but as the master of the house looking to see if his servants are going to snap to attention like they're supposed to snap to attention when he shows up. And if they respond well, we feast and the servants are treated with honor. And if they don't respond well, well, the master of the house needs to get him some different servants, doesn't he? Look at verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To be a church, whether we're talking about Laodicea or Ephesus or Smyrna or Nashua Baptist, all right? To be a church means that we exist for the express purpose of representing the master of the church. 
And so the question demands to be asked, what happens to churches when despite all the great things that are going on, the subtle shift creeps in that they are masters unto themselves? That somewhere along the way, they they slowly but surely drift away from seeing everything that they've been given as tools to build Jesus' kingdom, and they instead buy into the lie that they deserve some of the credit? Well, that doesn't really happen in churches though, right? Yeah, the tragic reality is that it happens all the time. There are gatherings of people all over all over the world today that are still gathering around this thing or gathering around that thing who a long time ago stopped gathering around the Celebrate King Jesus thing. And some of them got there through the, the direct trajectory of rejecting the gospel. That's true. But a lot of them got there through the more meandering trajectory of complacency and self-congratulation. Hey, everybody, look at what we built. Aren't we awesome? What happens to those churches? What happens to those who don't have ears to hear? What happens to to those who don't conquer? Jesus threatens to remove their lampstand if they don't repent. Regardless of whatever group of religious people want to call themselves, the Lord of of the church is the one who doles out the titles. His opinion is the only one that actually matters, and so he's the one who decides if we're a church or we're not a church. And make no mistake about it, the threat from Jesus, from King Jesus, it's real. It's genuine. But so is his offer of grace. I love you. I want good for you. Repent and turn away from your complacency. Instead, be zealous for me. Hear my correction. Hear my rebuke. While there's still time, repent. There's so many, so many great things going on here, but the pathway from great things to cancer is only as long as our ability to guard our hearts from, uh, from self-impression. And that is precisely why I think Jesus' warning to the church in Laodicea ought to serve as a warning to us. We must guard our hearts. Not, not because we're doing a bunch of stuff wrong, not even close. Not because we're walking in sin, not even close, but because sin is always creeping at the door. And it can seize opportunity even when we're on the mountaintop. Lukewarmness does not happen because a church stops passionately doing fill-in-the-blank ministry. It does not happen because, you know, when the worship grows a little stale. And it doesn't even happen when the preaching is a little flat. I'm sorry for that. It happens when we lose sight of who's actually holding us together. It happens when a church begins to exist for itself and the periphery things become more and more passionate. More and more of our identity. And so we protect our church and all the good things that God is doing here by remembering who's actually responsible for every ounce of it. And by doggedly giving credit where credit is actually due. So if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, that's our response, right? We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, the Lord of the church wants to call his servants to attention. Are we going to snap to it or not? My prayer is that we do. We've got a long history of of snapping to attention when it was due, when it was time. But every, every opportunity is a new test. Will we be faithful? I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's the time that we set aside to give you space to respond. I'll be down front here if you want somebody to talk to. 
What about those of us, those of you who aren't followers of Jesus yet? How, how can you respond? Answer simple by meeting Jesus. It's really that simple. The Bible teaches that because of our sin, we are all separated relationally from God and that we are all owed the just and right punishment for that sin. The, the Bible calls that punishment hell. The Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with an incredibly great love, that even when we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, he makes us alive again through the grace of Christ. The eternal Son of God he put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that you can't live and I can't live. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He, he, he made the full and final payment for sin in his death. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now he is the king who conquered sin and death. He calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that today. I'd love to be helpful to you. You don't need me, but we can talk. I'd love to help you figure out what that response of faith actually looks like. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way, whether that's by formally joining our church family, or maybe uh, it's time to be obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized, or maybe God's placed on your heart some call to take the gospel far away from here, and it's time to make that calling public. I'd love to help you think through what those next steps look like. We can talk about that stuff too. But whoever you are, however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you get to us. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for the most severe letter yet. I'm so proud that we're not as big a mess as Laodicea. But that's where the danger lies. Getting there is something that can happen all too quickly. So guard us from that. Remind us of your goodness and your grace and your provision and your lordship. Remind us that you are the good king and our, our desire is to be the faithful steward. Thank you for the good things going on here. Really. You've been so good to us. We'd love to see some more of it, but only if it gives you more glory. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known? Would you call men and women into your kingdom today. Open eyes to see and ears to hear. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name.